Good morning. A quick note as we get into our lesson today. Today you'll find some running commentary periodically pop up along the bottom of the screen. Somewhere down here. So, if you are, are listening along and not watching on YouTube, whether you're just not watching the screen or you're listening to the podcast, you won't necessarily miss anything that's pertinent to the lesson, but you may notice a few extra pauses here and there. So that's what that's about. Now, over the last several weeks, we have been looking at what are commonly known as the seven I am statements in John's Gospel. But if you read through John, the phrase I am begins to jump out in many other places than just those seven statements. The phrase that's, that's translated in English as I am is the phrase ego ame in Greek. Now both of those words show up more times in John than in any other book of the New Testament, with both of them being used more in John than in the other three Gospels combined. And again, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, that's probably not at all surprising to you. Because as we have seen in, in plenty of other instances, John intentionally repeats terms and concepts as a way to, to propel his narrative and drive home the points that he's wanting to make. Now, it's actually John the Baptist who first is credited with this phrase, I am, in the book. John the author tells us that John the Baptist freely confessed that I am not the Messiah. Now, we could actually spend a whole sermon simply on that statement and the humility that it contains. You see, John is in prime position to allow pride to overtake him. I mean, people are beginning to follow him and, and they're looking to him as, as this sort of revolutionary leader. But continually, he points people away from himself and to Christ. And that sentiment reverberates in a later statement he makes when he says, he must become greater and I must become less. The word that is translated there as become less carries with it the idea of being inferior and can point to someone decreasing in authority or popularity, which is usually not something someone does by choice. But John's statement suggests that he recognized that his own popularity and authority amongst the people needed to decrease so that Jesus could be exalted. Now, it's easy for us to sit here and say, well, I mean, yeah, that's what anyone should, should say and do in that situation. But it's another story to come to that realization in the moment. It's not like popularity, influence, and, and power are modern inventions that, that wouldn't have been enticing to John. And yet, we find John saying things like, I am not the Messiah. In establishing his own identity, John points people to Christ. And so we might ask ourselves, how might my very identity speak to the lordship of Christ in my life, and my deference to him. 
as we go through the book, Jesus also uses this I am phrase repeatedly. Aside from the seven statements that we looked at over the course of our last series, the most notable instance of, of Jesus using that phrase is probably in John 8. That chapter features another in a long line of conversations between Jesus and some of the religious leaders in which they discuss, once again, Jesus' identity and authority. And over the course of this conversation, Jesus actually uses the I am phrase several times, saying just in John 8, I am not alone. I am one who testifies for myself. I am going away. I am from above. I am not of this world. And my personal favorite, I am not possessed by a demon. Now, towards the end of, of this conversation, some of the people bring up Abraham, basically, basically telling Jesus, look, Regardless of who you think you are, you're not greater than our father, Abraham. And so Jesus gives a lengthier response than we're going to look at this morning, but he closes those remarks with a particularly inflaming comment that so enrages the people that they immediately begin just picking up rocks to hurl at Jesus in an attempt to kill him. So what could, what could possibly have made these people so mad? What could Jesus have said, you might ask? Well, it was Jesus saying this. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, if it wasn't already clear enough through the numerous other I am statements that, that Jesus and John are using that phrase to draw a straight line of connection between Jesus and God the Father, it is abundantly clear here. There's little doubt that this statement is meant to echo God's divine name given in Exodus 3, where God refers to himself simply as I am. Now, maybe some of the people in the crowd were were grammar nerds who are simply upset with the obviously poor sentence structure and relationship between verb sentences, between verb tenses that Jesus is using. But let's assume that the people aren't mad about grammar and are instead vehemently angry at the claim that Jesus is making. As we have seen, over the last several weeks, Jesus makes some pretty bold claims about himself. But this one, this one is out there. I mean, Jesus is not only claiming authority of sorts over Abraham, but in doing so, he's also making the claim that he exists outside of, of sort of our known limitations of time and space. Like that the Jesus who is present in person here in John 8 was equally present long ago before Abraham ever existed. And just in case you thought it was easy for John to say something like, he must become greater, I must become less, just look at how other people at that time reacted 
when Jesus claimed to be greater than someone who had been dead for quite some time. But for John, this claim is foundational to understanding the magnitude of who Jesus is. Jesus didn't just hop on the scene at his birth. Jesus has been around for a while, from the beginning, in fact. And that truth is so central to the gospel story for John that he starts his letter by laying that out, saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, from the very beginning. So let's just think about something together this morning. If this is who we claim to worship and follow, who or what could ever overcome or defeat or shut him down? You might think that's a rhetorical question, and in many ways it is. As Christ followers, we already have an instinctively built-in answer ready to go to a question like that. Not only was Jesus the I Am before Abraham was born, but the power of the resurrection shows that not even death can stop or contain him. So let's sit with that question for a minute and consider the implications of the answer we might throw out so flippantly that we fail to consider what we really mean when we say it. Because when we claim that Jesus has power over everything, even death, we are saying something pretty big. I think you can sort of hear Paul address some of those implications when he writes about God's love for us in Romans, saying this, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor any virus or disease, Paul didn't actually say that last part. I added it in there, but I think you get the idea. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now notice he didn't say that God's love would keep us from experiencing any or all of those things, but simply that none of those things can separate us from the love of God of God. Paul's words in Romans 8 speak to the enormous, enormous impact that coming to know Christ has had on his own life and his view of the world in general. That as a result of knowing Jesus and understanding what God has done for him through Christ, Paul has come to believe that there is nothing that can separate him from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, let's switch gears for a bit and talk about restaurants. Our culture is 
currently debating how, when, and if people should do things like go eat at restaurants again. And this comes on the heels after debating how, when, and if restaurants should even reopen. With restaurants, we understand some very basic things about what it means for a restaurant to be open and what it means for a restaurant to be closed. A restaurant cannot continue to function as a restaurant without being able to provide food for people. And so if the restaurant as the building is closed, the restaurant cannot function as a restaurant. But there are other reopening conversations going on as well, including conversations about reopening churches. You can read articles with headlines like, When your church reopens, here's how to meet safely in Christianity today. Or, How churches are reopening during coronavirus in the Atlantic. Or, Reopening churches and coronavirus in Forbes. All of those articles, and many more, approach from a variety of angles, questions surrounding how, when, and if people should go back to church. But to attach a word like reopen to those conversations is problematic and treats the church something like a restaurant. It assumes that if the church building is closed, if people can't gather at the church, then the church, like a restaurant, cannot function as a church. And while it is, of course, true that we cannot currently participate in certain aspects of, of church life that are central to our identity as a church, I think it's problematic to talk about reopening churches mostly because it assumes that until that happens, churches are closed. And that mindset comes with some problems. Now, my purpose in bringing this up today is not to get into a debate about whether or not we should be gathering in person for, for worship services or other events. We've had those discussions in other places, and, and those are conversations that we will obviously continue to have going forward. Instead, today, I want to make a distinction that may seem, that may not seem significant on the surface, but one that, that I think is actually fairly consequential. You see, Paul's words in Romans 8 have such power and, and resonance with us because they are a testimony to the faithfulness of God. And so just as nothing can separate us from the love of God because of his faithfulness to his people, so too can the church never be closed, closed when the people of God are faithful to him. And that is true regardless of whether or not there are people at the church building on Sunday mornings. At the Vine Church, we are currently not meeting for any of our regular gatherings. But that does not mean that the church is closed. To say that our church is closed would mean 
relegating church to what happens within the confines of our walls and, and within the confines of our church building. And to do so is not only a false understanding of church, it also highlights a misrepresentation of what church is that has persisted within our American church culture for decades. You see, the Vine Church isn't closed because you, me, all of us are the Vine Church. And so the Vine Church isn't closed because you've been providing meals for people in need, because you've paid rent and, and provided financial support for those who have lost their jobs because you've encouraged others with phone calls and texts and cards, because you've invested in your families and your neighborhoods, because you've sought out God in, in new and powerful ways, because you've shared with others how your faith has sustained you through this season, because you've come here to continue to join your heart and your spirit with others in worship, because you've experienced the presence of Christ and the leading of His Spirit in, in new and transformative and powerful ways. And so the Vine Church hasn't been closed because our mission as Christians, and therefore by extension, our mission as members of the Vine Church hasn't been put on pause simply because our in-person gatherings have. As long as believers are living out their faith, the church is very much open. The doors to our building may have been closed more frequently than we would have liked over the last several months. And we're all, myself included, ready for our doors to be open again. And there will come a time when we will need to be reminded of the importance and the impact of, of coming together as a body. And admittedly, we all, collectively as a church and as individual people, are, are still trying to figure out what it looks like to be the church in a season when the building is closed. And I'm quite sure that there are things that we could have done differently and, and things that, that we could currently be doing differently or be doing in better ways. But let's continue in our efforts to see this experience as an opportunity to do just that, to be better and, and to seek out what it truly means to be the church beyond the confines of a Sunday morning worship service. I mean, we've been proclaiming for years that the church is not a building, but that it is the people. And we have been given a, a defining moment to prove that we actually believe what we have been saying in statements like that. Now, maybe you are sitting there today feeling completely disconnected from anything related to church, and maybe you've been feeling that for months now, and, and therefore you feel as if church has in fact been closed. And if that's the case, I get it. Again, none of us have navigated these waters perfectly. We're all kind of figuring this out on the fly. But there's no better time than now to start thinking about what it means to be a part of a church in this season. That could be as simple as sending an email to someone that you haven't talked to since March, checking in with someone that you know might appreciate a call or a text, 
could mean pursuing daily prayer time or, or engaging Scripture in, in more intentional ways. Just don't buy into a narrative that churches are closed. This week, a large megachurch in California that is defying orders to suspend large gatherings encouraged churches to stand with us in support of the biblical mandate together for corporate worship. But what if we viewed an unprecedented pandemic not primarily as as a battleground on which to defend our rights and, and freedoms to worship in the same building, but instead as an opportunity to serve and and encourage and grow and mature. So let's stand in support of the biblical mandate to love and to put the needs of others above our own, just as many of you have been doing. And let's do so as a church that is open, open to the ways that the movement of the Spirit may, may direct us to explore new paths open to the opportunity to pursue connection with others in ways that that may push us outside of our comfort zones, open to Christ's invitation to show the world that we are His disciples by the way that we love others. Today we worship a Savior who can say, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham was, but Jesus is. Someday we will be able to say that the coronavirus was. And when that time comes, we will still be able to say that Jesus is. And on that day, may we find ourselves unable to say that we are reopening our church because of a deeply held belief that as a result of the way we have carried out our faith in this season, the church never closed. And may we remember that nothing can separate us from the love of God not closed church buildings, not prolonged social distancing, not loss of income, not poor health, nothing. May you realize God's love for you today. And may we each share that love with those around us in a way that communicates our openness to the ways in which God is leading us. And as a result, may His faithfulness toward us be reflected in our faithfulness to Him. Let's pray our prayer of confession together now, and and then we invite you to a time of meditation, reflection, and a time set aside for us to share in a communion meal together. Let's pray. We confess to each other and to you, our Creator, that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear Hear us, us, forgive forgive us, us, renew our our resolve resolve to build build the the kingdom kingdom of Christ. Christ. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable, or paths of self-centeredness. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of righteousness. We confess that we have not loved you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear us, forgive us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of light.
Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear Hear us, us, forgive forgive us, us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. Amen.